chapter this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. We do a lot of Bible at King's Church, right? Because, you know, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to talk about <laughs> if not God's Word? So it's a, it's a delight to be moving through these books together and seeing what God's revelation has to teach us. So he, where we're picking up here, remember now, for 1,500 years, these people that the book of Hebrews is for looked to the descendants of Aaron to be their priests, to represent them before God and to offer sacrifices for them. And coming into Christianity meant turning their back on that old familiar way and looking to Jesus as their high priest. And this is completely upside down for them. It would have been easier, it would have been an easier pill to swallow if Jesus had at least been of the tribe of Levi, but he's not. He's of the tribe of Judah. Priests come from the tribe of Levi, kings came from the tribe of Judah, and ne'er shall the two meet. The author knows that they're thinking this way, okay? And he says, ah, is that so? Let me remind you about that time our father Abraham met a guy named Melchizedek. He's dropped his name already a few times in, in previous chapters, and then he's kind of put a pin in that and gone off on some rabbit trails, and now he's coming back to it. And so just as an aside, let me, let me recommend to you here, this is a really good reason to uh, take some time to read larger chunks of Scripture in one sitting. You know, not every day. It's okay, like, if you read a, a chapter or, or a passage and, and meditate on that as part of your regular uh, rhythm for studying Scripture and your devotional time with God. That's fine. But on occasion, set aside some time to read a letter in its entirety, the way that it was meant to be received and understood. It helps you keep the flow, right? And we know the flow here as we've said a bunch already, is, is he's showing them how Jesus is better. Remember that? Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's, he's better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than the high priests. And that's a little hitch in their giddy-up, how Jesus can be a high priest at all. So the author spends some time on that, convincing them of it. Why Jesus is a better high priest than the other high priests that came before the others were in the order of Levi, and Jesus isn't. So how's this work? Meet Melchizedek. All right, so now let's read Hebrews chapter 7. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is to be sought after as for gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. God, it is a precious gift to us that you have revealed yourself and your will to us. And we thank you that this day that we can read it, that we can study it, that by your spirit we may understand it. And God, I pray that you would allow for that to happen now as I worship you through preaching this perfect word of yours. Pray your blessings upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. It may not seem obvious right away, but the big takeaway message from this passage is God welcomes sinners into his presence through Jesus Christ alone. But how does the author get from here to there? How does he enter into that 
internal dialogue he knows these early Christians who were formerly Jews were having in their minds. He knows he's got to prove that Jesus has been appointed by God to replace the Levitical priests because they're the ones who brought sinners to God. And only the high priest was allowed to come into God's presence. So he's got to prove Jesus has replaced all of that, that he is better than all of that. So how's he do it? He mentions this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 3, he tells him, let's move beyond the basics, right? Let's move on from milk to meat. Let me show you some deeper stuff here. There's so much more you're missing. And he says, and this we will do if God permits. Remember he said that? Well, here we are now. He's he's getting into some of that. He's starting to to go through some of that with them. We're going to look at this passage two ways this morning, okay? The priesthood of Melchizedek and the presence of God. The priesthood of Melchizedek and the presence of God. If we're anything like these people who this book was intended for, the question burning in our minds at this point has to be, who is this Melchizedek guy? Who is this person that he keeps bringing up? Three times he's mentioned him already and then just leaves us hanging. What's behind that? So we'll unravel some of the mystery there and then going a little bit bigger picture, we'll talk about the presence of God because that's what's underneath his explanation that he's giving them. When the world fell into sin because of Adam, man was banished from the garden, forbidden to return cast out from God's holy presence. Someone has to bring us back. Could the Old Testament priests do it? Not hardly. Only one can. So we'll look at that too and how this all ties together in their minds to convince them that Jesus really is their great high priest and there is no other way to God. So the priesthood of Melchizedek. Verse 1 introduces us to this mysterious Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. And y'all, I could preach a sermon on that. There's so much just right there. But let's just pull the thread a little. He's what of Salem? King. He's the what of the most high God? Priest. So stop right there for a minute. King and priest. That's already flipping their lid. That, that can't happen. That, that's not supposed to happen. This is where everybody's sitting there listening to this and starts kind of looking at each other and like, what did he just say? Did he just say what I think he just said? This was in, inconceivable. You could only be a king if you were of the tribe of Judah. You could only be a priest if you were of the tribe of Levi. You can't be both. You can't be born into both tribes. This is crazy talk. But here's what the author does. He says there's a precedent for this. It's Melchizedek. And if you've been paying attention, you'd know that Melchizedek pointed us to something early on that the Messiah we were promised would be both priest and king. And Jesus is. So you see the connection here and why he brings Melchizedek up at all. Melchizedek was a hint that God dropped way back in Genesis 14, that there is something greater than Aaron and the high priests. 
greater than even Abraham. And there always has been. Jesus is nothing new. He's been the main character all along. You just didn't see it. But now, he says, I'm showing you Jesus. Enlarged to show detail. So let's rewind a little bit here, he says. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. And you don't need to turn there. He, he actually gives a summary of it right here in verses 1 through 10. Abraham's on his way back from whooping up on some kings and taking all his stuff back. Right? And he runs into this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Now remember, you have, to, you have to think the way that they're thinking. You have to think like a Hebrew. They know this story, okay? They, surely they would have heard of this before. It's one of those things in the Bible that they read, and they're like, huh, okay. And then they move on. Well, don't you ever do that? Sure you do. Of course you do. They don't fully understand it, and so it's, it's kind of forgettable, you know? They, they can't see what it's all about on the face of it, though. It almost seems offensive because Abraham, that's the dude. Abraham was the man. You can't imagine someone else blessing Abraham. Anybody that has the audacity to do that is, I mean, you, you, you can't imagine if there's going to be any kind of blessing that's worth anything, it's going to come from Abraham. And it was the Levites who got tithes, and they're not even on the scene yet. Did you catch that? Abraham hasn't even had Isaac at this point yet. And so if there's no Isaac, there's no Jacob. And if there's no Jacob, there's no 12 sons. There's no 12 tribes, one of them being Levi. The Levites aren't even there yet. But Abraham, the father of the Levites, tithes to this guy, Melchizedek. And again, if you're in their shoes, you're thinking, who is this guy? The author begins explaining in verse 2. He starts by translating his name, king of righteousness, and then king of a place called Salem, which means peace. So his very name, Melchizedek in Hebrew, Melech means king, Zedek means righteousness, king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And that's not just a name. He's actually king of a place called Salem, which is later Jeru. Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem. Why is this language we only attribute to Jesus being attributed to this Melchizedek guy? Exactly. See, when we realize the whole Bible's about Jesus, we find him in places we might not have thought to see him before. Melchizedek is what we call a type of Christ. You heard this before? A type of Christ, typology. It's pretty cool. It, it, and, and when you know how to spot it in the Old Testament, it gets a lot more exciting. So here's a little, a little crash course on typology. The word type literally means pattern or figure. To leave a mark or an impression on a surface. You think about a typewriter. Just pounds out, stamps these, these letters on a page. When we talk about typology in the Bible, we're talking about a pattern set down by a person, a place, or a thing that gets picked up by another person, place, or thing later on. And what you see here is the correspondence between the two. There has to be correspondence between the two and an intensification from the first to the last. So typology prefigures 
future events by events, persons, or things. All right? And here's a perfect example you're already familiar with. You know this stuff. You, just didn't, know, you didn't know it had a name. The Passover. You had the Passover lamb that was slain, right? Sacrificed for, for the family in that household. The blood was painted over the, the doorway so that God would pass over them and spare them. Christ is the Passover lamb. You see the correspondence, you see the intensification of one to the next. Here's another one. Israel is a type of the church. Israel was God's chosen people by birth that prefigured those who are children of God by faith. And so here's just another one, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, a pattern that was laid down, stamped into history, and implanted in the minds of his people to point forward to the fuller realization of it. So Melchizedek is a foreshadowing Jesus, the coming Messiah, who is the king of righteousness, of peace, and literally what would later become Jerusalem. But wait, there's more. Verse 3 it says, He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is e eternality kind of language. So does this mean Melchizedek literally didn't have parents and that he lived forever? No. He's presented that way in Scripture so that we look past him to the one he represents. He's depicted in Scripture as just coming out of nowhere with no known beginning and no known end. Why is he depicted that way? Again, to point them to something greater, to tip them off that a kingly high priest was coming one day. This was one of those signs on the highway of human history that pointed to their coming Messiah who would be their priest forever. Verse 3. And then get this, remember, this was before they even had priests at all. So there's this priest language that came before the Levitical priesthood. Look at verses 4 through 5. Abraham, the guy God's covenant people all started with, tithes to Melchizedek. But it was the Levites who wouldn't come until much later that God said would minister to his people as priests and receive tithes from them. Okay? Levites didn't give tithes. They received tithes. Because every other tribe got a land, right? The Levites didn't get a land. The Lord was their inheritance. They were set apart for a holy task, a specific purpose to minister to the people of God. And they were to be supported and provided for by their brothers. They were descendants of Abraham, he says. And it's as if they themselves tithed to Melchizedek. Verses 9 through 10. So this is a kind of trump card that the author is laying on them to show them there is one greater than Abraham. And he does it more explicitly where he talks about how Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He says, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, verses 6 through 7. The point here is not that Abraham is trash, okay, not, not, not in the slightest. It's just, you know, okay, go ahead, think of Abraham and how great he is. 
how great you think he is, how great he truly is. And then imagine how much greater one would have to be to stand over him and bless him. That's who this Melchizedek person is. And he's there to point you to Christ. What Abraham knew and what you should know, he seems to tell his audience, is that there's something better than Abraham out there. Out there somewhere, something greater than even Abraham exists. And it's not Melchizedek. He's a placeholder for the one who is coming, and you should be looking for him, waiting for him, looking to him, as Abraham did. There's a better high priest, one with a greater blessing. And they're tempted to believe those promises given to Abraham are obtained through them being Jewish, being children of Abraham. But no, there's someone greater than even Abraham. Always has been, and Jesus is it. So what he does is he kind of stacks these two columns. You have the, uh, the priesthood of Aaron and the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he says, look, look at them, which one's better? Which one do you think is better? Abraham knew which one was better, and so should you. That's the author's message. You're thinking about this all wrong. He says Jesus isn't disqualified from being a high priest because he didn't come from Aaron. He's a higher high priest because he didn't come from Aaron. He's higher than that, and he's the only way that you can truly get to God. Perfection wasn't attainable. Through the Levitical priesthood, he says there in verse 11. If it were, why would we need another? Better question, why would we, the better high priest need to be a king? Or eternal, or these other things that he talks about. That's what's coming up next. In verses 11 through 28, here's what we see. Jesus' priesthood is a kingly priesthood. It's an eternal priesthood. It's a certain priesthood. And a perfect priesthood. He's laying it on pretty thick. Isn't he? So let's cover each of those just a minute. And we'll get into the why is it all matter kind of stuff. Okay? Kingly priesthood. Jesus is unique. Because no one else could do that. It couldn't be king and priest. You remember Saul? You remember when he's, he's waiting on Samuel to come off for the sacrifice? Samuel's running late. Saul's getting anxious, and he does what only Samuel was authorized by God to do and offers that sacrifice. Not a good thing. That wasn't good. Not good for kings to play priests and for priests to play kings. The fact that Jesus does both proves he is a better priest. And they were supposed to be expecting both. That's the thing, too. They were supposed to be expecting both. Here's a messianic prediction from Zechariah 6.13. It says, And there shall be a priest on his throne, and a crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. A priest on a throne. A crown in the temple? So the fact that Jesus comes from the line of Judah and not the line of Levi shouldn't be a problem for them. That's what he wants them to see. This is to be expected. Jesus didn't need to be in the order of Aaron, 
but of Melchizedek. Why? Because they couldn't get it done, the, 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 uh, the Levitical priesthood. Verse 11, perfection wasn't attainable through them. And every time there was a new high priest, everyone was wondering who the next one would be because eventually that guy's going to die. So that's the next thing. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. No one will ever take his place. He lives forever and intercedes for his people forever, it says there. You see in verses 15 through 19, the problem with the Old Testament priests is they just kept on dying. There was always the question, who will be next? You know, the, the, the new high priest comes and it's like, well, I guess there's our priest for now. He'll only live so long. Who will intercede for us next? Jesus' priesthood is eternal because he doesn't die. He did that once, and he rose again. Jesus holds his office of high priest permanently because he is a priest forever. He continues forever, 23 through 24. His priesthood is also certain. That's the next thing. Because God swore. He swore an oath. He has sworn, and he doesn't change his mind. You are a priest forever, he says, verse 21. Now, here's the thing that, if, again, if you're them, you, you would pick up on, you would understand. Who else has he ever said that to? You're a priest forever. Never said that to any other man. They were temporary. They were holding Christ's place. They were keeping his seat warm. Now, Christ is in that seat, and he doesn't pass it on to anyone else. Not ever. God has sworn he is there to stay. And that's good news for us because like we talked about last week, people break their promises all the time, don't they? People break their promises all the time, but God is unchanging. He doesn't go back on his word. We can count on it. This is a promise God the Father makes God the Son and swears by himself that Jesus will be your high priest forever. And why does that matter to us? It's always a good question to ask. Why? Who cares? Is this just head knowledge, just fun facts to know and share? No, why does this matter to us? Well, because we have a stamp of certainty, a guarantee when it comes to our future in eternity. That's a big deal. He could have done it without making an oath. He could have just done it, not said, you know, I promise. I swear, right? He could have just done it. But he makes an oath so that we can be sure, so we can have confidence. Not blind hope. We don't have that kind of hope. Not a wait and see. We have certainty because he has sworn what he has promised will come to pass. And it's all riding on Jesus and his work is already done. He said it is finished. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. That's the Christian hope. That's what we mean when we say hope. Not hope as the world defines it, right? Not the kind of hope where you, you sit back and, and you're just sort of wringing your hands, hoping that you, you bet on the right horse. No. Hope that is certain because the race has already been won. That's the hope that we have. It is certain. It has been sworn. And his priesthood is perfect. That's the next thing. No one else can do what he did because no one else is sinless. Verse 27 says he had no need to offer sacrifice for his own sins. He didn't have any. He didn't have any sin of his own. 
And here's the problem with the fact that the Old Testament priests did. They couldn't, they couldn't make sacrifice to take away their own sins, much less anyone else's. That's why it was fitting, verse 26, that we have a high priest who is holy, who is innocent, and who is unstained with sin. In order for him to redeem us, in order for him to be a perfect high priest, in order for him to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins, he had to obey perfectly, and he did. Can't say that about anyone else. But that's what we need. It's what we needed, isn't it? You know, if you think about it, the Old Testament sacrificial system, what all did you need? What were the parts? Who were the characters? Who all was involved in the Old Testament sacrificial system? You, you had to have God, right? That's who the sacrifice was to. You had to have the people. That's who the sacrifice was for. You had to have the priest who offered the sacrifice, and then you had to have the sacrifice itself. Now, question, which of those parts does Jesus play? Answer, all of them. He is the God who demands the sacrifice. He is the priest who offers it. He is the sacrifice itself, and he represents his people perfectly in it. All of the components involved in an Old Testament sacrifice are met in the person of Jesus Christ. No one else can do it. That's why he's a better high priest. And that's a lot. That's some heady stuff, right? And here's the deal. This is some of that meat he's been talking about. Remember? In the last chapter he's saying, we've got to get along, little doggies. You know, we've got to graduate from some of the basics. Don't leave them behind. Don't forget them. But we have to build on these things. We can't just stay here in the, in the shallow end of the pool with our floaties on. You've got to learn how to swim in deep water. And this is deep water. You have to think. You have to be able to connect the dots. And when you do, you see what you need to see and what you need to stay focused on, which is Jesus. The gospel isn't one of those thick board books for children with more pictures than words and only six or seven pages in them, right? The gospel is a never-ending story. Have you gotten to the part where God comes and dwells with his people again? and a renewed earth. Before you get there, you got to get this. God welcomes sinners into his presence through Jesus Christ alone. That's our last point, the presence of God. We talked a lot about the priesthood of Melchizedek and what all that means. And now we move on to the what's it all for sort of category. The presence of God. What the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the priesthood of the Old Testament showed us, what the Old Testament sacrifice screamed at us is this. You are not worthy to approach God. If you wanted to come worship God, it took a lot of effort. You had to go to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. And if you were a Gentile, you got stopped in the parking lot. Can't go any farther. 
Can you imagine going to a big ball game that you wanted to see? Your favorite teams are playing, and you, you're only allowed to tailgate. You're not allowed to go in. That's what it was like. But suppose you weren't a Gentile. Suppose you were a legitimate Jew. Well, you could get in. You could get in the gate, walk around where all the concessions are and, and the souvenirs and things like that. But if you wanted to actually go any farther, if you wanted to go and sit in your seats, if we're going to carry the stadium metaphor, another step, you had to be verified clean that you had gone through all of the rituals and washings. And then you'd come into the inner court where the priests were, and you could see, right? You could see where the innermost part of the temple was, where you knew God's presence was, and you wanted to be there, but you couldn't go, weren't allowed. That was a restricted area. Not even the priests could go in there. Only one could go in there. If it was the Day of Atonement, you'd see him slip behind the huge curtain there and offer the sacrifices for the people of God. And if you were a Gentile, that wasn't for you. Now let's make this practical so we can see how much better Jesus is because that's what this passage is all about. All of you had to get up this morning and come here, travel to come to church to worship God. Anyone stop you in the parking lot? Anyone check your ID at the door? Did you have to fill out a, a checklist or a questionnaire to see if you were worthy to come into the sanctuary this morning? Why? Because that curtain that represented your separation from God has been torn in two from top to bottom by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your unworthiness to come before God and have perfect communion with him and to be in his presence has been swallowed up in the death of Christ. And his worthiness to stand before God is what you have now. He's a better high priest and the guarantor of a better covenant, verse 22. All of the Old Testament worship that screamed you are not worthy to approach God it, it did that for a reason, it, it, and it wasn't to make people feel bad, okay? It wasn't because God is mean or he was on a power trip. The reason it did that, that it shouted that at us, that we're unworthy to approach God and emphasize that is because, first of all, it's true, okay? We're not worthy. God is holy. We can't just waltz up to God like we're old pals. We've sinned against him. We're worthy of his just wrath. But here's the other reason and the more important reason, the reason the author wants to make sure his audience picks up on, there is a man who is worthy to come into the presence of God. And he has brought all of those walls down so that he could bring us in with him. We can walk right in. Clothed in his righteousness, we have unrestricted access to God. And it doesn't matter if you don't feel worthy. Because I know some of you go there in your minds. It doesn't matter if you don't feel worthy. You are. He is your mediator. You are under his umbrella. When you worship God, when you come to him in prayer, and when you feel unworthy to speak to him, unworthy in his presence, like all the eyes of the host of heaven are on you, like what's he doing here? 
Jesus points at you and says, he's with me. And you belong. Galen, he says, he's with me. Elena? He points and says, she's with me. And you get to say, no matter how, place, how out of place you feel in the presence of God, you get to say, I'm with him. The only one who can get you all the way into the very presence of God, where you need to be, is a better high priest than any that came before. One who is not of Aaron or Levi. One who continues in his office forever. And because he does, here's the result, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And he makes intercession for them continually. He never gives up. He never lets go. He never fails. And he never dies. He's without beginning and end. So now you see the significance of mysterious Melchizedek. Why he's presented in Genesis 14 the way that he is. And why he's brought up here. He was a type. A pattern that points to the one of whom all of that is true. He is revealed at that point in time to show early on there's something better out there. Something better that we're supposed to be looking forward to. Something better that we now, on the other side of the cross, look back to. Something better than the Levitical priesthood. Someone better than Aaron. Someone better than Moses. Someone better than even Abraham, who God's covenant began with in the first place. And what's the point in knowing all that? What's the point in believing all that, being convinced of all that, and being able to connect the dots? Here's why. Because everyone born of Adam, and that is everyone, has been banished from the presence of God. But God welcomes sinners into his presence through Jesus Christ alone. There are no more walls, no more curtains, no more barriers, no more gatekeepers. There is salvation in no one else and no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other mediator between God and man but the man Christ Jesus. Believe in him and be reconciled to God and await the day with his saints when he comes back to make his dwelling place with us. That's the end game. Always has been. God's presence with us for eternity. We had that in the garden. We lost it. He was pleased to dwell in tents and temples for a time, but then he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. But then he left. And he gave us a spirit while we wait. But he will come again and when he does, our faith shall be sight. Presence with the God who made us and redeems us for his glory and for our good.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you for your word. How else could we know this magnificent news? That Lord, though we are sinners, you've loved us enough to save us. Jesus, the lengths you went to to purchase us. God, I just pray this is something you'll have to do by the power of your spirit. Only you can do it. Would you overwhelm us with a sense and recognition and realization of your grace and your mercy for us? As my brother David mentioned at the very beginning of the service, that we would understand our need and how great is our need so that we can understand how great of a salvation it is that you offer, that we have received by faith and we would rejoice that our lives and our attitudes and our behaviors and our decisions and the way that we raise our families and everything that we do in life would shout out to the world that we rejoice in our salvation, that there is a Savior who brings sinners back into God's presence. Let us not be ashamed to say there is no other way. Lord, I pray that you would use us, the saints here at King's Church, to share this life-giving message. That just being around us, people will know that there is something better out there than whatever it is that they're hoping in. That we would be able to share that with them. And that by your spirit they would come to believe this is the work you are about. We pray it is the work that we would be about. For your glory, for the good of your church and your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.